If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm 23. That's where we will be spending our time this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the youth pastor here at First Alliance Church, as Scott said earlier. Uh, I've been here for almost a year, so it's, it's quite amazing how uh, time has flown by. Um, and what's more amazing to think is just how fast the past two years have gone, the last two and a half years have gone. Uh, on March 28th, 2012, uh, my wife and I had our firstborn child, Ella, Ella Rose is her name. Um, she, she's a wild thing. Uh, we, call, we, we call her, our, you may think she's sweet if you've seen her like walking around the halls, but we call her our little monster um, because that's what she is. She's a monster, but it's cute and she can get away with it for now. Um, I remember just the anticipation leading up to, to the delivery and just trying to figure out how to do this whole parent thing. Um, and now I sit here two and a half years later still trying to figure out how to do this whole parent thing. And, and we've, we've got to figure it out soon because my wife is expecting another child at the end of November. Um, so I'm sure once we figure out having, how to have one child, we're going to fi- need to figure out how to have two. So it should be interesting. I remember the days after Ella was born, though it was a very special time for our family, um, for the three of us just to spend time together. I took a few days off of work, and I don't know if this happens with every um, family, but most of our time after Ella was born was spent just us sitting there staring at her. Like You'd probably think we were weird, but we were just like, I would sit there and I would just look at her for hours. Because uh, she was just this beautiful little infant that we held in our in our hands, and she was so precious. I, I can tell you what didn't happen when we got home. We didn't get home and set her in the crib and say, um, "Ella, there's milk in the fridge, uh, some clean diapers underneath the cleaning table." Uh, you, you, your, our home is your home. Your mother and I were going out on a date, but you have our cell phone numbers if you run into any problems. Right, that, that didn't happen. We'd probably get a call from child services if it did. Um, but it, we, it couldn't happen because she was not capable of, of providing for her most basic needs by herself. She needed us. She depended on us to be diligent as parents to care for her. She needed us. Sometimes our, our view of God is very small. Um, we view God as small as that he doesn't have much power. Um, and there's a reason for this, and I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes by a gentleman named Rico Tice. He is an evangelist out of London, and he says that we have a weak view of God because we have a strong view of ourselves. And we have a strong view of ourselves because we have a weak view of our sin. We have a weak view of God because we have a strong view of us, and we have a strong view of us because we have such a weak view of our sin. And, and so sometimes, you know, you can sit here and you say, I believe in God, Mike, but I, I think of him more as like a cosmic observer. That he created the earth, he spun it into motion, and now he's sitting back in his chair watching how things play out. We almost treat it as if we're some kind of like one of those old mechanical wind-up toys that God has wound up, set loose, and has just observed what's going to happen. Um, the, the scripture does speak of a God that we would call transcendent, a transcendent God, a God that is outside of creation or above creation. Uh, but an attribute of God that a lot of people miss is that he is also an imminent God. Not only is he a transcendent God above creation, uh, 
uh, and outside of creation, but he's also an imminent God in that he is actively involved with his creation. He's actively pursuing his creation. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4, shows us this imminent God, this God that's involved in his creation. So if you would, I'll read just the first four verses. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Amen. Right off the bat, it's important to note that this psalm was written by David, King David of Israel. David is one of the more prominent figures in all of Scripture. In fact, his name in Scripture is mentioned close to a thousand times and it's, he is only second to the name of Jesus being mentioned in Scripture more, more times. And so he's, he's a prominent character in the Bible. Um, God himself said that David was a man after his own heart. He would be identified as the shepherd king of Israel because he was a shepherd boy before he became the king of Israel. He cared for his flock of Israel like he cared for his sheep. A shepherd that's actively involved in caring for his sheep. So he knows what being a shepherd uh, would look like. In verse 1, he is calling God his shepherd. He's calling God his shepherd. And so what he's basically telling Israel is that as a sheep follows the shepherd, I as king am following God. And since I am leading you and I am following God, you in turn are following God. In the context, everything from verses 1 through 4 is set in that metaphor of us being sheep and the Lord being our shepherd. Um, David was referring to God, and we know that Jesus Christ himself claimed to be God, and so it wouldn't be a far assumption to say that Jesus Christ is our shepherd. And we'll make a few connections from the Old Testament with the exact words that Jesus um, has said as well uh, to put that together. But in verse 1, he starts off by explaining, The Lord is my shepherd. This is a pretty bold claim. This is a bold claim. One time I was sitting in a, at a Hard Rock Cafe, enjoying a meal, and in the center of the restaurant there was a car that was hoisted up, and on the license plate it read, God is my co-pilot. God is my co-pilot. So I started thinking about this, and what, what does that actually mean? It, you know, it seems like a nice sentiment, but co-pilot seems to mean that uh, he drives sometimes. Uh, that he's only there to drive when the pilot's tired, or he's only there to assist the pilot. If this is your mantra, if this is your life's motto, uh, motto there's a problem. Um, there's a problem with this. Because I want you to understand the working relationship between God and us. If we call him our shepherd, we are calling him our owner, our manager, our caretaker, our pilot, He's the one in the driver's seat as our shepherd. It's a bold statement, once again, for David to share, especially as king, because he's declaring that God is sitting on the throne in his life. It also describes a very intimate relationship between David and God. 
When he calls God his shepherd, he's showing intimacy because sheep know their shepherd. One commentator would actually say that a sheep is so in tune with his shepherd that if a shepherd's flock has been mingled with another shepherd's flock, the shepherd merely has to just call out and he can divide the flocks just by his voice. Real sheep, when they are mingled with other sheep, know their shepherd's voice and the shepherd calls out and he can divide the mingled flocks. There's intimacy between the sheep and the shepherd. David is also declaring total dependence on God to care for him. And in turn, he can trust him. So he continues in the second part of verse 1, and he describes the state of life that he's in. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. What does he say? I shall not want. I shall not be in want. Now, don't misunderstand this. Let me clarify what he's saying What he's not saying is that he has been given everything his heart desires. He's not saying that the Lord has provided for him every single thing I've ever wanted. But what he is saying is that he's been provided for everything that he needs. Everything spiritually that he needs has been provided for. If we lined up every single person in this room and we jotted down what your... Uh, greatest desires were, were, we would come up with a great list. Uh, and a list we could probably all relate to. But bottom line, most of those things that I think we would jot down, that I would jot down at least, I don't need those. I don't need those. And so I've got to ask the question, are you completely satisfied with the way that God is providing for in your life? Are you completely content with how your life has been managed to this point by God? Can you sit here and say, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore, in light of that, in light of the fact that He is my owner, that He is the one that is controlling over my life, I shall not be in want. I don't need to be in want because He's provided everything I need. Some of us can't accept this truth. And so we we actually try to go to other shepherds, uh, figuratively speaking, that don't care for us like God cares for us. They lead us, it it might seem appealing at first, but they end up leading us to a dead end or a cliff. One of those popular ones is money. Because we can always get a little bit more money, right? We can always sit here and say, only if I had more money... Would I uh, be happy or would I be content or I'd be able to provide or I'd be safe or I'd be secure? Let me show you a story about how this was quite opposite the case for one man in Texas. This comes out of a a local Houston magazine from several years ago. It says this, Many have the same dream, finding the six magical numbers that unlock the treasure known as the Texas Lottery. Then life would be good. Problems would vanish. Billy Harold Jr. shared those common visions by common souls seeking the salvation of sudden fortune. And in June 1997, he found it. He sat in his easy chair one evening and looked at his quick pick and then at the Sunday newspaper. Harold studied the sequence of numbers again and began to realize the wildest of notions. He and his wife, Barbara Jean, held the only winning ticket to a Lotto, Texas jackpot of $31 million. Later on, it says it was great, at least for a while. 
Harold purchased a ranch. He bought a half dozen homes for himself and other family members. He, his wife, and all the kids got new automobiles. Then suddenly, Harold discovered that his life was unraveling almost as quickly as it had come together. His spending and his lending spiraled out of control. In February, those tensions splintered his already strained marriage. On May 22, 1999, only 20 months after hitting the lottery, Harold locked himself in an upstairs bedroom and took his life. Perhaps the only thing not in dispute about his life and death is the jarring impact of money. It may not have caused his problems, but it certainly didn't solve them. Shortly before his death, Harold confided in a financial advisor stating that winning the lottery is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. Just one small example about how other shepherds don't lead you like our God does. Don't provide for you like our God does. And we may think that they do. We may trick ourselves into believing that. But it doesn't take long before we find that out. That's not enough to convince you that only the Lord provides. David goes on and poetically gives four examples or four things, four ways that God does provide, that his shepherd provides for the sheep. And we start in verse 2. The first thing that he provides, the shepherd provides rest. What does it say? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. My old youth pastor told me a story one time about a camp that he worked at. And this was a rigorous camp because this was a youth camp. If you've ever worked at a youth camp, you know that takes some energy out of you. Um, the, the students would show up on a Monday evening and they would be there for the entire week until Monday morning. And so the counselors would finally get a break from about Monday morning, like 10, 11 o'clock to the evening, which was like 6 or 7 o'clock, where the whole new batch of kids showed up with energy and bouncing off the walls and everything. Um, the uh, camp director would encourage his counselors during that time between when the students left and showed up that each counselor go back to their cabins and take a nap. And then he would tell them because the most sometimes the most God-honoring thing you can do is take a nap, is to rest. God worked for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. The funny thing about sheep actual sheep is they literally will not rest. They won't even lie down unless they are in certain conditions, unless certain conditions are met. And these conditions can only be met by the presence of the shepherd. If the shepherd is absent and cannot care for the sheep, they will not lie down and they will not rest. It seems kind of silly, but the same, of tr- the same is true of us, isn't it? How many sleepless nights have you had in the last couple of months anxiously waiting the following day, borrowing trouble from tomorrow's uh, anxiety that you're not supposed to deal with yet? How many times do we lose sleep and we can't rest because we aren't in certain conditions? You may say, how on earth can I rest when that deadline is approaching at work and I don't know where I'm going to find the time to meet it? 
How on earth can I rest when my husband can't get a job and we're having trouble making ends meet? How am I supposed to rest when I don't know what school I want to go to or what college to go to and I have no idea what the future holds? So many times we sit there and say, how can I rest when all of this is going on inside of my head? I can't. Jesus actually had something to say about that, though. He invites us in Matthew 11.28. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. His grace is sufficient for you and all of your anxieties that you bring to the table. His grace is sufficient. At no point in Scripture will we find it saying something like, as soon as you get done with this project, then you can rest. As soon as these conditions are met, then you can rest. No, it says, as soon as you follow Christ, then you can rest. I catch myself all the time thinking, I'll be okay after this day is over. I'll be okay once this project is done or that's handed in. But so many times I've got to correct my thinking and say, no, I'm okay right now because Jesus Christ's grace covers me. He gives us rest. Sticking in verse 2, not only does he give us rest, but he also provides nourishment, food and water. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. If you ever have the opportunity uh, to visit Israel, you would know that much of the biblical land the land that the original readers would live in was very actually not great land for sheep. It was very tough grass, sparse, it was dry, and it was rocky. And here David gives a picture that sounds very appealing to to the reader. Unlike the sparse, tough grass, the shepherd provides a field with rich, green grass for food for the sheep and flowing, quiet waters for drink. As I imagine this verse, I would just love to sit down with a book under a tree and just stay there and be fed. In the same way the shepherd diligently provides food and water for his sheep, God provides spiritual food and water for our hungry souls. And the best part about it is it's free, it's free nourishment. Just yesterday, my wife overheard a conversation of somebody that was in the cruising, um, and they sat down and they said, this church gives out free food. <laughs> this is awesome. I want to be in a place that gives out free food. You can, you can count on me being at a place that gives out free food. That's for sure, right? This spiritual food is free, and it's satisfying, and it's the only thing that can satisfy a craving in our souls. The only thing that can quench that is Jesus Christ himself. And it reminds me of another story from John chapter 4. Do you remember the story of the woman at the well? Where Jesus asked her to draw water from the well, and then they sparked a conversation. And he says this in verse 13 and 14. He says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you find yourself spiritually hungry or spiritually thirsty? 
I would encourage you, if that's you, consider following Christ. Consider following Christ. Because I guarantee you that he will fill you up. Moving on, not only does he provide rest, not only does the shepherd provide nourishment, but the shepherd also provides guidance. Psalm 23.3, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He guides me in paths of righteousness. He guides, he leads. Now don't misread this. Um, we can get the path of righteousness confused with some just moralistic idea that we walk this moralistic path, that God shows us the path, and then we walk it the rest of the way by ourselves um, based on our moral good behavior. But that's not the case. The path of righteousness could actually be more accurately translated or described as the right path. The right path. The path that leads us to God. Once again, we'll find Jesus touching on this in John chapter 14, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we have to understand that it's not just us who follows the right path, but in fact, Jesus is guiding us in the right path. He is leading us in the right path. It's, it's not a matter of him showing us to the right path and then letting us loose, but he guides us in the right path. He doesn't guide us to the right path. He guides us in the right path. And he's our leader. I heard a story. Somebody came up to me and shared a story with me just in between services like an hour ago. And he was explaining about a story of a man who took a bus tour or was leading a bus tour in Israel. And as they came around a corner, they found this guy who was driving the sheep. He was kind of standing behind him doing one of these, trying to get the sheep to go. And the bus driver stopped the bus, got out, and started yelling at him. He said, you're the shepherd. You're supposed to be leading the sheep. Lead the sheep. Don't drive the sheep. Lead the sheep. Show them the path. And the guy, after they talked for a little bit, said, you're right, the shepherd leads, but I'm not the shepherd. I'm the butcher. Right? <laughs> Christ leads us. Christ leads us in the path of righteousness. He doesn't nearly show it to us and then leave us to our own devices. If sheep were left to their own devices walking through the path, they would fall off track very shortly. And in the same way, if God merely showed me the right path and then said, you're on your own, it would not be long before my eyes started to shift and wander and go off on a different path. Our response is to walk as Jesus walked. So many times we talk about as Christians, in order to become a Christian, you have to accept Jesus into your heart or you have to believe Jesus. And yes, that's true, but something, an important part that we're missing that he said more often than those other things, especially to his disciples, what did he say? He said, follow me. Follow me. By following him, we are indeed walking the right path, the path of righteousness that leads to God. And it's only by following Christ. But following Christ will potentially lead us to places that we don't want to go. We will experience valleys in this life, and that's what brings us to the big one, the big verse. 
It's one of the most popular verses in the Bible, and I think it's because of the gravity and the weightiness that it holds. And it says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Oftentimes when shepherds would transport sheep uh, to greener pastures, they would have to travel through these deep valleys that were void of light because of the walls, the giant walls of the valley looming over, blocking the sun. These valleys were often dangerous and filled with potential disaster because you didn't know what was right around the next quarter, the corner. And it could be a predator, it could be a thief, it could be anybody. And so you could imagine the sheep would be terrified walking through these valleys. In our life, these valleys would symbolize just deep gloom or distress or even terror in our life. So many people as Christians, myself included, look at others and they see just these mountaintop experiences that people have. They look at these mountaintop experiences and I say, I want that mountaintop experience. I want to be at that mountaintop experience. How do I get to that mountaintop experience? And we look at others and then we look at our life and if we're completely honest with ourselves, we'll sit here and say, my life has more valleys than mountaintops. My life has way more valleys than mountaintops. So a couple of observations about this verse. The first one is this, there will be valleys. Notice David doesn't write, he guides me in paths of righteousness, which lead me to paths of nothing but rainbows and sunshine. He doesn't say that. He says he leaves me in paths of righteousness, and then he immediately goes into the talk about valleys. Sometimes when we're following Jesus, we will have to walk through valleys, and there's nothing you can do to avoid this. There will be valleys in your life. But that's my second observation. Notice what David is doing in the valley. He isn't stopping. He isn't resting. He isn't living in the valley. He is walking through with Jesus by his side leading him all the way through with God being our shepherd. You're walking through. You do not live there. If you are a Christ follower and you are adamantly following him, you do not live in the valleys. You don't. You walk through. It's not our resting place. The green pastures are our resting place. We're not staying there. It's not our home. And the third observation is we don't have to be afraid of these valleys. Because we have a shepherd that is more powerful than any posed threat or potential danger that we're going to find there. We have a protector. When I was younger, uh, there was a bully that lived a few houses down the street from us. And there was one morning, I'm sitting at the bus stop reading a book, um, sitting down on the concrete. And he comes up to me and he just starts poking me in the head. And he starts saying stuff to me, and he's bullying me. Well, the bus stop was actually on the corner of my house, uh, my house's yard, the lot. Um, and my older brother, who was six years older than me at the time, um, decided he wasn't going to take this anymore. <laughs> so 
he, I, I see him, he flings the front door open and he takes a beeline to the bus stop and he's running and he grabs this kid by the, the front of his shirt, kind of lifts him up a little bit and says, if you ever mess with my brother again, you're going to have to deal with me. That kid never, ever messed with me ever again. You should have seen the terror that was in his eyes. And the reason he never messed with me again and never made fun of me and never picked on me again was because he knew I had a protector. And he was intimidated by that. And so know that when you are walking through the valleys, know that you have a protector. And anything that can ever happen to you in this life while you're in the valley shudders at the name of Jesus Christ. How awesome is it that we have a protector? The psalmist David writes that his rod and his staff comfort him because he sees that his shepherd is prepared, that his shepherd has a full arsenal waiting to attack anything that comes near to his sheep. This may be a loose application, but we indeed have a shepherd also with a full arsenal, and it comes in the form of God's word. We have a defense. God's word is our defense. God himself has spoken, and we even now can use this. And you can take comfort in it. So if you're in the middle of a valley right now, I promise you, that if you are following Christ through it, you will come out the other side. Maybe not in this life, but for sure in heaven. You will come through, if not in this life, in the next. And what a beautiful thing it is that we have a protector. And so with all of this in mind, knowing that he provides for our rest and our nourishment and our guidance and our protection. We can sit here and look at God's track record and say, Lord, I trust you because you have proved yourself over and over and over again. Let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed, Lord, I trust you? For me, A little over a month ago, I sat down and I prayed this prayer. Because in a particular moment, I felt like I was going through a valley. And so I sat there and I said, Lord, no matter what happens, come what may, I trust you. Two days later, I found out that my dad had blood clots in his leg going to his lung. And we rushed to the doctor's office, and he had to be moved to the the hospital. They took him uh, right into the hospital. And I remember um, we we had an issue with cars, and I had to take his car, and my mom was taking my my dad uh, to the hospital. And I remember sitting in the car. That might have been the last time I saw my dad. And so I rushed back in, and I wrapped my arms around him, and we embraced. and And I looked at him, and I said, I'm scared. I'm scared. He's okay now. He's with us this morning, um, thankfully. But how amazing was it? And what potentially could have been the hardest thing I've ever had to experience and what my family had to experience to be able to sit there and say, God, I trust you. I trust you. 
If you look at these four verses in the psalm, you can see God's gracious hand actively involved in our life. Look, look at it again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is the subject of it all. Sheep would not survive without the diligence of the shepherd. The absence of the shepherd would lead to the death of the sheep. The Lord is present. The Lord is active. And the Lord is diligent in your life. Praise to him who goes to such great lengths to care for us sinners. You may be sitting here thinking, I want that peace. I want that rest. I want that guidance. I want that protection. I want that nourishment. I want those things. So follow Christ. Follow Christ because he can provide.